Amen. Welcome, everybody, to the Flood of Evidence Conference. We're so excited you're here tonight. You're going to be, I, I believe you're in for a special treat this weekend. We're, uh, we're going to really dive deep, and we're going to, you're going to be encouraged. You're going to be challenged. You're going to be, most of all, hopefully led to worship our Lord and Savior more, even as you look and as we discuss the rocks. You know, when we were promoting this conference, I had a gentleman say on, on one of our videos, he said, um, flood geology, it's, it's pseudoscientific, and it's connected with someone who's trying to have a literal reading of Genesis. And the implication is, really, it's trying to force something that's not there. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, can the Bible really be trusted? Is, is the flood and flood geology, is it really grounded in, in good reason? Or should you even care? Well, I think we're going to answer all these questions in a variety of ways this weekend. But if we claim to be a believer in the Lord Jesus and his word, 1 Corinthians 13 says we delight in truth, right? And, and we should stand for the truth. And I believe that um, the rocks cry out and confirm this. Now, many of you may still be thinking, how do I sort through this? I hope you will stick with us tonight and come back tomorrow and, and invite others uh, to join us for our conference. Now, we're really excited because uh, we have uh, two special guests this weekend with us. And they were with us this morning at the Dinosaur Tracks at Crystal Ray, Dr. John Whitmore and Nate Loper. And Nate Loper is the executive director of Canyon Ministries. And uh, I, I guess I've known him for about, I wouldn't say about three years now. And he's been on my YouTube channel many times, and I went on a river trip with him. And I'll tell you, when I went on this river trip, I, I, the, my life was changed. I, I was a believer before, but I saw everything from a, a different perspective. Well, one, I started dreaming about rocks, uh, and I've never had a, ro- a dream about um, <laughs> sedimentary rocks. But two, uh, I really, I grew this, this deeper conviction and passion for this is all about the gospel, ultimately, and science is all about worshiping the Lord Jesus. And, and then I said, we need to take this step. We need to bring the El Paso Creation Network. We need to organize those that we need to get together and, and make this a reality. And what we, I believe we'll see and we'll continue to see is lives changed because all fields of knowledge point to and confirm the Word of God. And so we're going to start out tonight with Nate Loper. He's going to be talking about the Grand Canyon, the flood, and, and the carving of the canyon. So I'm not going to take any more of his time, but I uh, just want you to uh, give him a, a warm welcome tonight. All right. Well, thank you, Caleb, for that fantastic introduction. And uh, welcome, everyone, tonight. We are super thrilled to be here and uh, in the great state of Texas. The middle section gets it. The rest of you guys will work on it later. Um, but like Caleb said, my name is Nate Loper, and uh, I'm going to share with you guys tonight a little bit of evidence of the flood in Genesis that we see at the Grand Canyon, the evidence for that. Now, the Grand Canyon is not the only place, certainly around the world, that we can see evidence for that global flood. We're going to be talking a lot of different places and a lot of different aspects of that global flood throughout this weekend. Um, so we're going to talk about that later this evening, tomorrow, and even tomorrow we're going to talk about another flood 
We're going to talk about the Red Sea flood, if you will, um, regarding the Exodus. We're going to be talking about that uh, tomorrow afternoon as well. So I hope you guys will stick through today and tomorrow. But tonight, I'm mostly going to focus on the Grand Canyon, and that is because I serve as the executive director for Canyon Ministries, and we are a ministry at the Grand Canyon National Park. We have been doing trips and tours from a biblical creation perspective for over 25 years now. And so those trips and tours look like all sorts of different things. We do backpacking trips. We do uh, river trips that are anywhere from four, seven, or nine days in length. We do daily tours along the rim. We do hiking tours. We basically cover this canyon from uh, from top to bottom and uh, everywhere in between. How many of you guys have been out to see the Grand Canyon? Let me see your hands. Most of you looks like. All right. How many of you guys, anybody been on a trip with Canyon Ministry? Been out there when we're out there? A few guys. All right. Dr. Whitmer, of course, has been on many river trips with us and all kinds of adventures, Um, so it's fantastic that he's out here with us this weekend as well. But how many guys want to do something like floating down the Colorado River through the Grand Canyon? I mean, how amazing, epic is that? That's why I tell people I have the absolute best job in the world, and you you might like what you do, and I'm sure it's pretty good, but I've got the best job in the world because every single day... I get to go see the Grand Canyon. I get to guide multiple river trips every year through that canyon. It's a spectacular place to be, a spectacular place to study God's Word and uh, through God's world. And in my opinion, there is no better place on the planet to see and to study and to understand what we call flood geology, quite like the Grand Canyon. So again, we lead multiple tours every single day, year-round, every single day except for Sundays. We're leading tours out there at the Grand Canyon National Park. Uh, this year, we're going to be serving over 3,000 people on trips and tours through the Grand Canyon, all from a biblical creation perspective. How cool is that, right? I love it. So anyhow, tonight we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the Grand Canyon, the flood of the, that we see around the world, but evidenced at the Grand Canyon. And so why the Grand Canyon? Why is that a place that we really want to talk about? And I think our president, Teddy Roosevelt, said it best. And here's what Teddy Roosevelt said. He said, in the Grand Canyon, Arizona has a natural wonder, which is in kind absolutely unparalleled throughout the rest of the world. And if you've ever seen the Grand Canyon, you know that's exactly the case, right? There is no place on the planet quite like the Grand Canyon to see the majesty of God on display through the wrath of the flood. And in the video you just watched before, even beauty from wrath. Because that Grand Canyon is a testimony to the judgment and wrath of God. But even in judgment and wrath, God has made incredible beauty for us, right? It's because God is all about the business of redemption and of restoration. And so we're going to cover a little bit of that tonight. But I'm going to kind of dive into flood geology. So for those of you who aren't familiar with the Grand Canyon, there it is. Pretty grand, right? What you're looking at here is actually like 277 miles long. It's really big. So Grand Canyon starts way up here. Uh, We've got Page with Glen Canyon Dam making Lake Powell that goes all up into Utah. Um, Glen Canyon Dam built back in 1963. And then you follow your way all the way down, all the way around 277 river miles. You end up in the far western side over by Las Vegas with Lake Mead made by the Hoover Dam back in 1935. So between these two big man-made lakes of Lake Powell and Lake Mead, we have the entirety of the Grand Canyon in the great state of Arizona, where I live. 277 miles long, 
10 to 18 miles wide and over a mile deep in most places. That's a long ways down. Some places it gets over 6,000 feet. And in fact, 6,093 feet is kind of the maximum depth that we have there at the Grand Canyon. So we're going to talk about that tonight. I'm going to cover aspects of the Grand Canyon. We're going to talk especially about the geology of the Grand Canyon, a lot of these rock layers. So here's kind of a geological diagram showing you guys some of the various layers of the Grand Canyon. Standing on the rim, looking down into its depths, we've got about 4,000 feet here from the National Park area, about 4,000 feet of water-laid sedimentary rocks, things like sandstone and limestone and shale. Those are the predominant rock types we see at the Grand Canyon. And then we have, oh, about two-thirds of the way down, as you can see here, the Tapetes sandstone, which we're going to be talking about tonight. Keep that word in mind, Tapetes. Underneath that, we end up seeing some tilted, angled sedimentary rocks called the Grand Canyon Supergroup. It kind of goes on down through here until we get to the basement rocks of the Grand Canyon, the kind of the crystalline basement rocks made up of igneous and metamorphic rocks down there at the very bottom. Now, how many of you guys have studied geology or rocks or anything like that in school so far? I know we've got a lot of students tonight, which is fantastic because uh, before doing Canyon Ministries work, I was a youth pastor for 12 years, so I love that we've got a lot of students tonight. They're my favorite. Sorry, old folks, but the kids are my favorite tonight. They're your favorite too. Don't you, you know, you can say it. Anyhow, let's learn a little bit of school. Let's learn a bit of geology. So if you guys remember from school in geology, all rocks around the world fall into one of three different classifications. So we have sedimentary rock, which is the majority of the rock covering our planet typically. Things like I said, sandstone, limestone, and shale, those are sediments. So think of like glued together sand grains, kind of like that, right? Rocks typically laid down or formed by water. So can everyone say sedimentary? All right, good participation tonight. I love it. Participation awards for everyone. Uh, Sorry, I can't say that. All right, so we have sedimentary. And then our second rock type, we might say, would be igneous rock. And igneous rocks are rocks that come up from lavas and volcanoes, right? You can think of them like cooled magma. Rocks are once molten and melted and liquefied that rose up and solidified. So igneous rocks, kind of think of like the word ignite, like a fiery rock, right? So can everyone say igneous? All right, and our third rock type called metamorphic. I knew you would know that. I should have said you can't answer because you have all the answers already. Metamorphic. So metamorphic rocks are rocks that have undergone a change, typically by heat and pressure, right? So heat and pressure kind of squeeze it, melt it, realign the crystalline structure oftentimes, making a much stronger rock in the end. And so metamorphic rocks are rocks that have undergone a change, like I said, typically by heat and pressure. You can think of the word metamorphic like the word metamorphosis, right? Which, of course, is the process of a caterpillar becoming a butterfly. To metamorphose in the Greek, to change in its nature or its form. Now, really cool, the Bible actually says the same thing about us in regard to how we are changed and transformed in our nature into the image of Jesus Christ. The word in the Greek is to metamorphose, to change in our nature. So pretty cool. So sedimentary, igneous, metamorphic, thinking about those three different rock types, most ladies tend to love the metamorphic rocks best. And why is that? Because diamonds are a girl's best friend, right? Isn't that how the song goes, ladies? So most of your diamonds and gemstones and jewels are metamorphic rocks in nature. So ladies tend to love the metamorphic rocks best. So on the count of three, we need all the ladies in the room to go, ooh, metamorphic. 
Don't worry, we're going to embarrass the guys too, but let's see who can do it better, the ladies or the guys. So on the count of three, ladies, one, two, three. Wow, that was like angelic. I love it. So ladies oftentimes like metamorphic rocks, the shiny bling stuff, you know, pretty, pretty. Guys oftentimes like igneous rocks, right? Because volcanoes and fire and lava, oh, oh, those deep, dark, fiery rocks, right? You know what I'm talking about. So on the count of three, we need all the guys in the group to go, oh, 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 igneous, with your deepest, manliest voice possible, right? And let's see who can do it better, gals or the guys. So on the count of three, guys, one, two, three. I kind of have to give it to the ladies tonight. They were a little bit more in sync, so... Give yourselves a hand. Very good. Guys, give them a ring later on. Um, anyhow, n- none of you young kids over here. Ignore I said that. So, guys oftentimes like the, me- uh, the igneous rocks. Gals oftentimes like metamorphic rocks. Geologists oftentimes like sedimentary rocks, right? There we go. There's sediment geologists in the room over here. That's my favorite rock type, actually, too, because within these water-laid sedimentary rocks, we find lots and lots of... Fossils, just like we were exploring this morning at Fossil Hill over there, finding lots of fossils. So, thinking about the fossils we have, we have fossils all over the Grand Canyon from top to bottom and everywhere in between. We also have fossils around the planet on top of mountains, even at the top of Mount Everest at 29,000 feet. Now, thinking about that, that's a way, way, way high place, right? Thinking about the Grand Canyon, well, the Grand Canyon is about 400 miles away from the nearest ocean. It's about a mile above sea level. So what are fossils doing up there? Sounds to me like there was a pretty big water event, right? That covered all the high hills under the heavens, and you might call that a flood. So we're certainly going to talk about that tonight, a flood of evidence, if you will. And so we're going to dive into what I call flood geology, which is kind of understanding the rocks and the geology of the planet through a biblical perspective regarding the true events of the flood in Noah's day. Now, I know I speak quickly. I'm already going to apologize for that. But I'm also going to tell you our shortest tour at the Grand Canyon is four hours long. So I can't condense four hours into about 45 minutes, but we're going to give it a shot, right, Caleb? We're going to squeeze about two different lessons in tonight, so I am going to talk a little quickly. If you have questions, we can certainly deal with that and all kinds of fun stuff. But we're going to provide some quick three rock-solid answers, I would say. Rock-solid. Okay, sorry. I'm a dad. I can make those jokes. It's okay. So three rock-solid answers or three rock-solid evidences for a global flood as seen at the Grand Canyon. And I'm going to kind of focus on one area in particular, and that is this Tapete's sandstone area right here. Because if somebody asks me at the Grand Canyon, hey, can you give me your one favorite, one best answer on how we have a flood or what evidence do we see for the flood, I would point them to this Tapete's sandstone. If you look at the geology of the Grand Canyon again, thousands of feet of water-laid rock, sandstone, limestone, shale. Down here, we have a line a division basically between these flat horizontal rocks and tilted angled rocks down below. That contact point where the rocks come together, the contact point between the tilted rocks and that tapete sandstone is known as the Great Unconformity. Now, don't worry, guys. It's one of the biggest words I'm going to teach you tonight, so don't worry too much. But can you guys all say unconformity? Very good. So the Great Unconformity looks like this when you're standing up from the rim. There we go. So there's a picture I took about seven years ago, standing up on the rim from Lippin Point, my favorite overlook of the south rim of the Grand Canyon. You see the flat horizontal rocks going way, way down until you get to that cliff line right there that kind of goes all around. And that is the Tapete Sandstone. And if you look closely, all the flat horizontal rocks here, 
now changed to tilted and angled rocks down below, all the way down to the river. Now, the contact point, again, between the tilted rocks and the flat horizontal rocks, geologists call this an unconformity, because the rocks do not conform or match up. And oftentimes, in the standard geological models, they would say unconformities represent tremendous amounts of time, perhaps, between when one rock was deposited or something happened there, and when more sediment was deposited on top of there. And so they would call this the great unconformity, well, a couple different reasons. For one, there's a really big difference in the angle of these rocks, but also this great unconformity, more importantly, is actually a physical feature found around the world. So think about that for a moment. If you have a physical feature worldwide, maybe there was a worldwide event or mechanism to create that. Keep that in mind. Anyhow, this is what the Great Unconformity looks like at the bottom of the Grand Canyon, a place called Blacktail Canyon that we go into. And so you can see down here the kind of tilted rocks. These are the crystalline basement rocks of the Grand Canyon. Sitting on top of there, we have the beginning of the Tapete Sandstone. And this erosional boundary right here, this is the Great Unconformity. It's that line of erosion, basically. And what it is in standard geological models what they would say is a tremendous amount of missing rock and a tremendous amount of missing time. In fact, typically, right here we see this, uh, these rocks come together. They would say between these crystalline basement rocks here and the beginning of the Tapete Sandstone, where that line is at, they would say we're missing 1.2 billion years of Earth's geological history. In other words, 1.2 billion years have gone missing from the rock record. Now, I didn't say million, but billion that's a huge amount of time, and it's because there's a huge amount of rocks they would say is missing. We look at the great unconformity, and we see that there absolutely is a massive amount of erosion. So was that erosion over a long, long period of slow, gradual processes, or was that erosion perhaps rapid and maybe catastrophic by a big process like a flood? Well, to understand that, we need to go and examine the rocks. We go and take a look. So we do river trips. We go into Blacktail Canyon. Here's uh, Dr. Andrew Snelling from Answers in Genesis. So we not only bring Dr. Andrew Snelling, we bring Dr. John Whitmore. We do all kinds of trips down through here because we absolutely can trust God's word and trust God's world together. Science confirms scripture. And so we go on trips like this. We talk about the great unconformity. And when we get to examine the rocks, this is kind of what that great unconformity line looks like. Now you look here, a big, massive erosional plain, but notice all this broken up gravels, okay? All kinds of rocks embedded within here. We find all kinds of uh, granites and quartz and quartzite, all kinds of stuff plucked up from underneath, and uh, pretty amazing stuff that we find in here, all the schist that's been broken up. It's all mixed up and churned up, and when you examine these rocks up close, it looks kind of like this in places. This is actually from a four-day river trip, the same one that Caleb came on with us, Here's at the Great Unconformity. This is the line right here. You can kind of see the material above here. This is where that Great Unconformity line comes in. But notice this nicely rounded rock embedded in there. It's a very strong rock. Looks like something like quartzite here. Pretty strong piece of rock. Now, you guys are a pretty clever bunch. Where do we typically find round and smooth stones today? In rivers where there's fast-moving water, right? Where did David go to find those smooth stones that's like Goliath? Well, the Bible says he went down to the brook or the stream. And why was that? Well, David was no geologist, but he was smart enough to know fast-moving water tumbles these rocks, knocking off the sharp edges, rounding them smooth, right? So we typically find round, smooth stones where we find fast-moving water. 
So when we look at this tapete sandstone, the beginning of this, this erosional boundary, and we find numerous rounded rocks and stones embedded within it, what does that tell us about the way the tapete sandstone was laid down? Tells us it was laid down by fast-moving water. But here's the real kicker, the real interesting thing. Not only do we find smooth stones and pebbles embedded within that tapete sandstone, but we find boulders embedded within there oftentimes. We find massive rocks, massive boulders, some of them as big as a bus, embedded within that tapete sandstone, rounded smooth, even plucked up and embedded and left behind there. Now, that's not just fast-moving water. That's a lot of fast-moving water, right? Now, I don't know what the exact definition that Webster gives for a flood But I think if you look in the dictionary, it has something to do with a lot of fast-moving water moving across the landscape, right? So here we can see in the same Tapete Sandstone, in that great unconformity, we can see direct physical evidence that this material and this erosional plane was formed by fast-moving water across the landscape. You might just say a flood. Now, guess what? Believe it or not, that's what all geologists would say. Geologists around the world agree that this tapete sandstone was, in fact, deposited by a fast-moving water event. Even those who believe in millions to billions of years of evolution and millions of billions of years of slow erosion at some points throughout the Great Unconformity, what they often would say is, we don't know what happened during those 1.2 billion years, but there must have been a tremendous water event. Hmm. The physical features are undeniable. And so looking at this great unconformity, this erosional boundary to me is one fantastic piece of evidence, but let's move on to the next piece of evidence. Happens to be at the exact same place, and that is the Cambrian explosion, or the Cambrian explosion of life. How many of you guys have heard of that term? Okay, the Cambrian explosion is basically another worldwide physical feature, kind of a pesky little idea if you don't believe there's a worldwide flood, but anyhow... The Cambrian explosion, a worldwide physical feature, where there's basically an explosion within the fossil record that we see, and it happens to start right here in that Tapete's sandstone. Basically, underneath that, no major fossil record exists. No death and burial fossils underneath this level, this line. We basically go from nothing, nothing, nothing to an explosion within the fossil record that represents nearly every major phyla of life known to man instantaneously and around the world. An explosion, you might say, within the fossil record. Now, that is a mystery not just to geology, but it's a major mystery to evolutionary biology because it goes opposite of the evolutionary models of geology and of how we arose. Because they would say at the bottommost layers, you should find simple single-cell organisms gradually, steadily transitioning up through the fossil record, becoming more and more complex over time. We should see a nice, steady, transitional change through the fossil record. But guess what, friends? That is not what we find in places like the Grand Canyon. Again, we basically find nothing, 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 then boom, an explosion within that fossil record. And they kind of say it's as if life suddenly had a magic leap forward, coming from nothing to everything. But if you think about it, what are fossils? Are they living things or are they dead things? They were once living, now they're pretty well dead, right? They're in the rocks, they're in the ground. What we're actually looking at, we believe, is the beginning of the flood in Noah's day. That around the world, this Cambrian explosion is not an explosion of life. Rather, it's an explosion of death. 
Life existed from creation until the flood. We have roughly 1,600 years of time from creation until the flood. Life existed, but what we don't have until we get to the flood is a massive amount of death and burial catastrophically around the world. And that is how fossils are formed. They're formed rapidly and catastrophically by massive burial in sediment, dirt, debris, all kinds of stuff. I'm not going to talk too much about the mechanisms of the flood because I'm going to leave that for our rock star geologist over there. Rock star, okay, yeah, sorry. We're going to talk about that a little bit later on, so I'm not going to grab all of that in, but this Cambrian explosion is a worldwide physical feature we see at the Grand Canyon, right there at the exact same moment in time, the exact same place, so the same location that we find an explosion of erosion, if you will, we find an explosion within the fossil record. That's because to us, this Tapete sandstone represents the first of the layers deposited by the flood in Noah's day. The tilted angled rocks down here represent part of the pre-flood world that existed from creation until the flood. And then that Tapete sandstone, this massive worldwide erosional boundary, is the beginning of the flood. So briefly, I'm going to dive into one more thing about the very same Tapete sandstone, and that is the extent of some of these layers, like that Tapete's. Again, you look at this Tapete sandstone, and if I told you guys tonight, if I were to tell you that we can trace this Tapete sandstone all the way across the entirety of the Grand Canyon, that's a pretty big flood, right? We know the Tapete sandstone was deposited by a fast-moving water event, so therefore, if we can trace the Tapete sandstone across 277 miles of Grand Canyon, that's a 277-mile-wide flood. Now, what kind of floods do we see like that happening today? We don't. It's because the present world is not the key to understanding the past. Rather, it's understanding the past and those events of the past that are the key to the present world we have today. So we look at this, and if I told you that we can trace it to Pete Samson all the way across the Grand Canyon, that's a big flood, right? But what if I told you guys we can trace it to Pete Sandstone across the entire state of Arizona? That's a massive statewide flood, right? Pretty big, and you might be happy with that. I mean, that's a good evidence of a good flood, right? But wait, there's more, because it gets a lot bigger than that. Not only can we trace it to Pete Sandstone across the Grand Canyon and across Arizona, we can trace that very same Tapete Sandstone all the way across North America. That yellow you see here represents the Tapete Sandstone across the continent. It actually goes further up into Canada, goes all up into Greenland, uh, goes further around. This kind of shows you where some of the mapping has happened to show us where that Tapete Sandstone exists. Now, to get the same dirt from here, way on the West Coast, all the way to here, up to Maine, to get the same dirt from here to there, or from there to here, must mean you have a massive, big, continent-wide, fast-moving water event. Now, it's a lot easier simply to say, flood, right? But wait, there's more. Because not only can we trace the Tapete Sandstone across North America, we can trace the very same Tapete Sandstone equivalent all the way across North Africa, going up through southern Israel, through southern Jordan, parts into Europe and into Asia. Now, again, this is a cross-continental, fast-moving water event to deposit all this sand and debris. And in fact, when you look, comparison of Grand Canyon to southern Israel, look how similar the geology is. It's because you're looking at the same thing. This is the Tapete sandstone at the bottom of the Grand Canyon. This is the same equivalent we see in southern Israel. Anybody ever been to like Timna National Park area down there? Uh, great formations down near the, by there called Solomon's Pillars actually have the very same great unconformity erosional boundary. Again, a worldwide physical feature. So to me, if you were to ask me, 
what is my favorite evidence for the flood at Noah's, in Noah's day, seen at the Grand Canyon, I point you to that to Pete's sandstone, which to me is the most powerful example. But again, it's only one rock layer, only one example we have. I mean, I'm not going to spoil everything. We've got more to talk about throughout the week and a lot more if you come out on the Grand Canyon with me. But looking at that same Tapete sandstone, the extent of these sedimentary water-laid rock layers like the Tapete sandstone gives us direct physical evidence of a massive worldwide water event, a big flood. Now, we can talk about that later, but I'm going to dive into a little bit more of a kind of a mixed uh, lesson tonight where we not just talk about flood geology, but I also want to talk about the carving of the Grand Canyon. What is the best evidence that we see currently for the formation of the Grand Canyon. Now, a lot of ideas have been proposed over the years. Um, actually, going back to the 1800s, one of the first ideas proposed was looking at the Grand Canyon, it appears that a lot of water came rushing through here catastrophically, carving out the Grand Canyon pretty rapidly. And then other ideas came about. Maybe there was a big earthquake that actually split open the landscape, and that was taught for some time. And then another idea creeped in, Maybe the little Colorado River you see flowing at the bottom through there, that Colorado River may be given enough time, slowly carved out and removed sand grain by sand grain like a giant conveyor belt, carrying all that dirt and debris out of there. Now today, that's the most popular theory, but let me tell you guys something, that idea is losing favor among geologists, even people at Arizona State University, looking at that model and saying it just doesn't add up. That theory doesn't hold a lot of water. Thank you. Somebody laughed. Oh, thank you. That doesn't hold a lot of water, but you know what does hold a lot of water? A lot of water. Exactly. A flood. So looking at this, what do we see happening for the Grand Canyon? Well, the best evidence that I see personally in studying this landscape are evidence for a massive, huge lake system that we have um, just to the east and to the northeast of the Grand Canyon. A post-flood lake system. So after the flood, and if you look at a map, we actually can see, even on this map, you can see these kind of terrain lines up here. We can see kind of an open uh, basin right here, another basin down by here. And when you actually plug in computer software to actually fill in basins up to certain levels and terrain lines, you can actually see it fills in a perfect lake system. This was actually generated by simply a piece of software, me saying, hey, give me water at this certain depth. And here's what it does. It automatically fills in the basin. So you can see going back and forth, you can see how that basin, huh, it gets filled in. Pretty big lake system, you might say. And um, looking at this lake system, we're talking about a massive, huge body of water. Here, whoops, sorry, go back. Big body of water. Looking at this, it's in the middle of what we call the Colorado Plateau, which I've kind of outlined in yellow in this picture here. And in the middle of this plateau, we have this big lake system. And that's because the Colorado Plateau is not exactly flat on top like most plateaus. The Colorado Plateau is actually shaped like, kind of like a giant bowl. There's actually a big rim of mountains all around it. So naturally, water flowing in from the Colorado River Basin, coming in through here, dropping in, water coming from the mountains, basically collects in this giant bowl. And if you look at the Colorado Plateau today, we have numerous rivers and streams flowing into the plateau we basically only have one exit route of any good size, only one big crack in the side of the bowl that water can drain out of. Guess what that one crack happens to be? We've been talking about the Grand Canyon, which if you haven't noticed yet, because most people don't, here's the entire Grand Canyon from here to there. Look how much larger these lakes were. 
And when you follow the basin of the bottom of these lakes all the way up to the shoreline levels, we can actually see that this lake in some places was up to 2,000 feet deep. We're talking about a lake system holding thousands of cubic miles of water. And if you look at that in the comparison to North America, look at these lakes compared to the Great Lakes you might see up there. And in this animation that I put together, I want you to see as we kind of zoom in to the Colorado Plateau, I want you to see just how big this massive lake system really truly could have been in comparison to the little teeny Grand Canyon you might see over there. We're talking about a huge lake made up of mostly of three different lake systems, you might say, that kind of combine together. Hopi Lake, um, sometimes known as Lake Bittahoche, uh, Grand Lake, oftentimes known as Canyonlands Lake, and then up north into Utah, Lake Uinta, uh, sometimes called Lake Vernal too. But anyhow, zooming over... And as we pull back out, you'll be able to see the Grand Canyon here in a moment. We're talking about a lot of water for this huge, massive lake system. And this amount of water held in the middle of the Colorado Plateau would actually have nowhere to go but rise up and up and up and up. Because what happens to a bowl when you start pouring water into it? It starts to rise up and up. Now, what happens when you pour too much water into it? It starts to spill over. So looking at the Grand Canyon... Could it have been that this massive lake rising up spilled over the plateau, or a couple other ideas we're going to talk about in a moment, to carve the Grand Canyon through a catastrophic process we call kind of a breached dam model, where water spills through a dam, and as that dam is breached, now all that water drains through. And more water means more erosion. More erosion means more water. Pretty soon you end up with a catastrophic exponential runaway process. As we look at this whole area, my main focus of research for the last four years has actually been the Hopi Lake section, and the reason for that is because my house is right there. So Flagstaff is right there. It's easy for me to go to, to research this area, to look at the, uh, the lake bed deposits known as the Bittahoche Formation, to look for shoreline deposits, to look for all kinds of evidence for this massive lake that used to exist. And so that's kind of my main area of research. And in fact, I partnered this year with Dr. Steve Austin to create a paper talking about this big lake. Does Hopi Lake hold water? And this was presented this year at the 2022 Creation Geology Society Conference. And we're actually working on a much bigger paper coming out next year to showcase evidence that, yeah, this lake that was there really did exist. And this lake combined with the other water systems absolutely, we believe, has the power to carve the Grand Canyon with that amount of water in a matter of weeks to even months. A lot of water in a little bit of time. So looking at this whole landscape, we're not the first ones to come up with this idea. This was taught and talked about all the way back in the 1800s. So 1800s, John S. Newberry, a geologist, came researching this landscape. He actually went through the lake basin where Hopi Lake is at, the Bittahoche Basin, we oftentimes call it. Um, so starting back in 1858, he started looking at the evidence for this whole idea. Uh, the name Hopi Lake actually came about in the 1930s, so people were already identifying, even though there was no water, we can identify that there was a lake, and in the 1980s, they started calling it the Bittahoche Basin, and this is what the Bittahoche Basin and the Bittahoche Formation kind of looks like. This is out by White Cone, where I actually took Dr. Whitmore's geology students this earlier uh, this year or last, this year, yeah. We went out there and studied this landscape, and this guy, he's going to be humble about it, but he is actually one of the leading experts in the world on exploding fish. He can tell you about more of that later. You should ask him about it. But this guy knows lake bed deposits, and as we're standing out there, he's looking and saying, huh, 
This is a lot like the Green River Formation, which is what he did a lot of his research um, on. So we're looking at massive lake deposits. And when you look closely at these greenish lake deposits, first of all, they're kind of greenish in color, which is pretty important to understand because greenish lake bed deposits oftentimes are indicative of deep water environments in which they're formed. Not a lot of oxidation deep down. So we typically find greenish lake bed deposits where we believe that they were deposited by deep water. We also find within there a lot of freshwater mollusks, okay? So some shells like you might see here from a freshwater lake system. In other words, indicating absolute physical evidence that yes, there really truly was a lake, and this lake was deep. Like I said, up to 2,000 feet deep. We also find areas where we find what looks like tufa, which is basically a calcium carbonate a deposit that's oftentimes formed around the, the fringe edges of lakes or things like that. So we look at evidence like this. Um, there's another rock right here. This is another very interesting rock. The blackened rock underneath, if you can't quite tell right here, this is basalt lava. Sitting on top of that basalt is all of this banded formation, which looks like some kind of calcium carbonate deposit, perhaps tufa. Uh, this rock you see here and um, right here, the same rock. Even look at the banding on it. This rock is actually on the back table. I brought it with me from Arizona for you guys to take a look at. It's one of the rocks that Steve Austin and I are going to be doing some research on to uh, take some strontium readings of it to kind of determine the, the origin of this calcium carbonate to take a look at it. Anyhow, pretty cool rock. We can talk more about it at the table. But not only do we find amazing physical evidence in that regard that there was a big lake, we also find other interesting things like tundra swan footprints, tundra swan uh, bones, and fossil ice cast crystals that have been left behind, or crystal, fossil yeah, ice crystal cast. There we go. In other words, ice that was around the fringe of a lake that then had a void that was filled in. You can actually tell that there was a bunch of ice around the edge of this lake. And we have tundra swan tracks, tundra swan fossils. In fact, this slab of rock right here is two miles from my house at the University of Northern Arizona Museum. Or Northern Arizona Museum. Taking a look at this, the name tundra swan. Is tundra a word that you oftentimes associate with Arizona? Not so much, right? Why is that? Well, Arizona is way down here. And where's the range of the tundra swan typically? Way up here. Tundra swan because they live in the tundra. So what are we doing finding their bones and finding their footprints around the edges of this lake way down in Arizona that used to exist? Well, the reason is this lake used to exist, we believe, into the Ice Age. So after the flood in Noah's day, there was an Ice Age that lasted oh, five to seven hundred years, maybe even up to a thousand years after the flood. And it was at the end of the Ice Age, I believe, that this lake system that was trapped in the middle of the Colorado Plateau, this big lake system, breached and spilled through, and all that tremendous amount of water rapidly and catastrophically spilling through, carving the Grand Canyon, like I said, in a matter of days, weeks, maybe even up to a few months. But again, evidence that there was a lake, and that lake existed for some time, and that lake rose up, spilled through, and finally... One more piece of evidence I'll leave you guys with tonight. We've been searching for a long time for lake shore deposits. We call strand lines, where basically shows you where lake boundary was at. And oftentimes they grow, and so they move as water fills in. They kind of rise higher and higher. Or as water evaporates away, they might go lower. Well, one of the research projects that Steve Austin and I are working on is actually a place that I discovered this last December. And if you look closely, can you see all these lines going across here? This to us, and we've done even the field research on it, we spent three days wandering around here. This is actually a big formation. 
but mapping out what looks like lake shore strand lines. In other words, direct physical evidence of a lake shore. Now, how do you get a lake shore? From a lake, right? From a lot of water. So looking at this, we actually even plotted the elevation. These lines go up and follow the elevation rise of the landscape. So you can see in this bowl-shaped basin or this rise is coming up, water is moving up and creating these terrace lines, these lakeshore strand line terraces. And so even plotting on elevation lines, you see this is the lower section rising up higher. Those lines, it's kind of hard to see on here, but on my computer it's easier. But those lines follow these terrain lines perfectly as you rise up in elevation. And here's what it looks like up close if you are flying over it. So this is actually um, some aerial drone footage that I shot of these uh, strand line deposits that we're looking at. And so we went out there and spent three days. Uh, Steve Austin, Ed Ho, let's see, no, Ed wasn't with that one. Tom Folks and I went out there and studied this whole landscape. And this to us appears, the best evidence is that this was part of a lakeshore area. Now, this is something that geologists have been looking for for many, many years even in the creation world, we've been looking for this. So here, perhaps, might be one of the smoking guns that there really was a big, massive lake system. So we're still in the kind of the research and writing phase of this, but pretty cool in this whole massive landscape, ongoing, brand new research that you guys can actually see that, uh, hmm, direct evidence that there was a big amount of water. Now, that huge amount of water spilling through the Grand Canyon, we believe, is what formed the Grand Canyon rapidly and catastrophically. But since we had a huge amount of water, one of the questions we need to ask, of course, is what happened to that water? If we had a big, massive lake system that was thousands of cubic miles, did that water simply dry up or did it disappear? Well, if that water in this big lake, if there was a massive lake and it dried up, what would it leave behind? A bunch of salt mineral deposits, like you see Lake Bonneville, right? Massive, huge lake that evaporated and dried up. We can see the remnants today in Salt Lake up in Utah. And around the edges and all the way toward the east or to the west, we can see the salt mineral crystals that are left behind. This is the evidence we see from an evaporated lake. Yet when you go out to study where Hopi Lake is at, near my house, we don't find salt mineral deposits. We find a lakeshore basin, you know, shore, oh, sorry, we find a lake bed de deposit, but we don't find evaporate deposits like you would expect if the lake dried up. It's as if this water was there and then it was gone. Now, when we look at this, the only place that water could have gone is through the nearby crack, the Grand Canyon. So the way we see this happening, if you were to look at the Grand Canyon today, this big kind of a lima bean looking thing here, this is the, the Kaibab Plateau. And today, this is what we look at. Here's the Grand Canyon cutting through the Kaibab Plateau. Come on a rim tour with us. We'll spend time around this area here. Come on a river trip. We'll start up here and we'll go all the way down through here. But here's the Kaibab Plateau, and it's cut right across this high point. The way we see this happening is this massive, huge lake. This actually is where the shoreline was actually mapped at. Um, Dr. Steve Austin actually found some lake bed deposits over in this area as well. But we look at this where the lake used to be at. This is the breach point for this massive, huge body of water that spilled through. Water that was a massive, huge volume rapidly carving the Grand Canyon. And we can even kind of identify the initial breach point of where Hopi Lake came in at. So Hopi Lake would be kind of down here to the bottom right area and see all these finger channels coming in toward this lake area. This is the breach point for Hopi Lake for all the water that's nearby Flagstaff that we've been studying. That water came rushing toward 
and carving out and ripping through into the Grand Canyon, combined with other water up to the northeast that came rushing down. Collectively, this huge amount of water, thousands of cubic miles in size, rushed and spilled through, we believe, carving the Grand Canyon very, very quickly. A lot of water in a little bit of time did this, we would say, not a long time in a little bit of water. And likewise, we would also say there is a canyon here, not because there's a river down below, but there's a river down below because there is a canyon. We believe the Grand Canyon was opened up first and remains to this day as the exit route for all that water on the Colorado Plateau. Instead of ponding up and making a big lake, it's now continually free-flowing via the Colorado River. And if we dammed up the Colorado River, let's say a mile high in the Grand Canyon, you better believe we'd have a really big lake once again just behind it, right? In fact, haven't we dammed up the Colorado River in a few places, made some pretty big lakes? The two largest man-made lakes in our nation, Lake Powell and Lake Mead, are made from the very same Colorado River water flowing through the Grand Canyon today. And those dams are only about 600 feet high. If we had a mile-high dam, you better believe we would have a huge amount of water. But because we have a breach in that dam to this day, the water continues to flow out of it. And so what we see is evidence not only for a flood in Noah's day to deposit the sediment, but in a smaller local flood after Noah's flood that rips through the Grand Canyon. Again, a lot of water in a little bit of time. And I'll leave you guys with that. And if you have other questions, we can hang out out there. We've got a little break coming up right now, I believe. So I'm hanging out with you guys. If you have questions, I'll be back there. Also, we're giving away two free rim tours to somebody this weekend. So all you got to do is go to the website you see on that banner by the table that says win a free tour and go to cannyministries.org or cannyministries.org slash whatever the title is. It basically takes you to our homepage. And if you sign up to join our Canyon Ministries family on there, you just got to put your name, your email address, and there you go. And we're going to do a little drawing for two free rim tours of the Grand Canyon. Pretty cool thing, right? All right, Caleb, back to you, my friend. Thank you so much, Nate.